welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 123. One, two, three. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, another exciting day in our new studio, man. How's it going? Well... It's it's getting there, and you know, we got a got a work in progress. Um, luckily, producer Nate was on top of things this morning, making sure that we had all the equipment we needed to run the show. So thank you, As producer, always. thank you, producer Nate. We appreciate you uh, stepping up your game for that for us to get this done. Um, yeah, man, it's good, good week. You were out out and about, man. The people last week, uh, how was it? It was good, man. It was good. Actually, uh, was at a YP event and. Uh, yeah, I had, had some. It was a good conversation up there. Something I want to mention on the show at some point today. Just some insights into LNG and kind of some of the predictions by some folks in the uh, investor side of the industry. But um, man, it was great. I, I'm actually having lunch with somebody I met out there tomorrow, and uh, yeah, it's just been a been an interesting week for sure. Yeah, and uh, we have a guest coming on today, Reed Goodman, friend of the show, been on here before, reviewed the show, which, hey, Josh, we haven't asked for reviews in a while, so rating and a review in iTunes would be much appreciated, so Reed will be coming on, and Reed rightfully gave me some grief a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I am with the the U.S., uh, the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations now, and that's Reed's brother, Robin, who actually hooked me up with that, and so Reed sent me a text like, hey, thanks for the shout-out. I really appreciate you you mentioning the hookup there, so I didn't mention Reed for that, so thank you, Reed, in case I forget when he comes on, so I'll go ahead and get that out there now. Um, so Reed hooked me up with that, so I want to thank you, and if you're interested in that, we will link to the website, uh, bushchinaconference.org, in the show notes. If you're interested in doing business with China, here, there, or anywhere, um, have a lot of good stuff for folks about that. So yeah, man, good good week though. Ready to get it, ready to get into it, and uh, you know it's <laughs> it's funny. Two weeks ago, everyone was saying that you know the world was coming to an end and prices may go up to seventy, and then here we are today, and it's it's sitting here. I'm looking at now. It's uh I think fifty five or something like that. So <laughs> that didn't last too long. Didn't last long. Yeah, they talked a little bit about that at that event I was at. But you know the the Wall Street Journal. They, uh, they have an insight here where they say that shell boom is slowing just when the world needs oil the most. So, um, you know, the, by the world needing oil the most, they're referring to the Saudi event, the refiner, refinery being attacked. Um, and it, while that's going on, it seems, that, it seems that production as a whole has really started to slow here. So uh, some numbers here, U.S. oil production increased by less than 1% during the first six months of the year according to the energy department down from nearly seven percent growth over the same period last year so from january to september there was a seven percent growth this year there's only a one percent growth and this is happening as these pipelines are coming online bottlenecks being taken out and this also attack on on the saudis so uh you know one of the things they note here ryan is the wells producing less than expected which is certainly an interesting topic uh, but there's and, you know, a lot going on in the global markets right now, and it's interesting to see how this is going to play out. Yeah, it's funny. The Wall Street Journal, which hasn't, which has been pretty critical of the industry, mainly because they, I think, cater to investors. Um, but they've been critical of the industry, and now it's like, hey, 
you know, we, we, we need you guys. And but but we did talk about the price. The price really isn't moving. The price is, I think you said 55. I can put my phone. It was like 55 this morning. So the price really isn't, you know, the price was skyrocketing or something like that. You're like, okay, hey, um, yeah, the world the world really needs the oil, but but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing that the market is is pretty confident where it's at. Now that might be a false false confidence. Is yeah, Brent's at 60, almost 61, and WTI's at 55 and some change. Um, that might be a false confidence or a misguided confidence. But the but the price right now is not telling the market uh, to drill. And in, in fact, if you, if hypothetically, if the frackers would have responded to the attack by Saudi Arabia and went out there and, and you know said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go start drilling and we're gonna change everything," they'd be getting crucified. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting the spot that they're at now. Um, right, wh- wherever you come in on the argument of, you know, you know, are they gonna make it? You know, they've been you know mismanaged. Wherever you come in on any of that, um, they're in a kind of a no-win situation now. And it, it, you read the headline like this, and it's like, well. You need us the most. Well, for the past six months, you've been telling us how, how bad we've been doing, how dumb we are, and now you're saying we need us the most. But, I mean, again, I'm no genius here, but the price doesn't say they need us. The price is $55.50. If the price up to 70 75 80 something crazy, you could see that. But I, I, it's, it's the messaging is so mixed. It's like, what, what do you want the frackers to do? And at this point, it's not that they couldn't even respond. They wanted to because of where they're at in a year, probably. Um, so I, that's my frustration here is the price isn't saying the world needs it the most. Well, maybe that'll change in, well, I say October. That's what, a day or two away. Maybe that'll change in October, November, or December. But right now, Josh, the world doesn't need more oil. It's happy with where the oil is, at least according to the investors and the traders and the folks that, you know, they're hedging the price, uh, the, the hedge fund managers, all the people who are influencing the price. They're sitting there saying that we're happy with where the price is. You know, that's been that's been one of the things we see uh, in the industry is that it's just resilient, much more resilient than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. Um, uh, prices are just bouncing back or, or, say, you know, bouncing to where they, you know, 55 ish uh pretty steadily one of the questions that we talk about a lot ryan is just going to be what happens when um more and more companies go bankrupt and production begins to slow prices begin to you know they they stick here what happens when the supply starts to drop you know what that's one of the things that we don't hear anyone talk about is that at some point if production slows supply drops and when supply drops Typically, you see a rise in demand and, and increased prices, which bring more production. So um, not many people are really factoring that into their equations and, and how that's actually going to actually going to work itself out. You know, most people are just looking at the here and now and production is stopping and they're kind of rolling that out without factoring in the economics of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, what is going to happen you know, when you see the, the, the rig count, as we talked about, we don't track the rig count every, every week anymore, but the rig count has been following. At some point, we're going to see what's going to happen with the ducks. The whole duck thing, you know, unless the price ticks back up pretty quickly, uh, the duck debate, I think, will be over here in six months. Um, we're going to sit there and go, okay, this is what's going on with the ducks. You know, where's, how many ducks were there? Was the production levels really where we thought they'd be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that'll kind of theoretically mend itself out. But and that's something to consider here. If all these ducks are there, as we've talked about in the show, then theoretically the, the U.S. has a ton of oil ready to come online. And that's – it's like, okay, well, the ducks. So I think you're right. And it's 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 it's, it's, it's kind of goes back to something we said before is, you know, who is the intended, au- who is the intended audience for um, 
for um, for the message. You know, who are you writing towards? What what you know? How in depth do you want to be? Obviously, this shows a. 30 minute 40 minute podcast there's plenty of things that we skip over so we acknowledge that but i think that's part of what we try to do is we, we try to say hey we, we're acknowledging that there's other factors that we're not weighing in here therefore you it takes more research and, and these articles seem to be kind of a, a definitive piece on what's going on it's like well you know, okay whatever guys you're kind of you're kind of missing a lot here well uh you know one of the things that is going on in the market from the standpoint of china international relations stuff going on in ukraine um I don't know if many of our listeners follow some of the politics of uh, some of the presidential candidates, but um, so there was an article that came out this week that LNG is the American aid Ukraine really needs. So um, America, uh, the U.S. announced that it was going to at least hold uh, funds, about $400 million, while they're doing some um, investigations into um, – Ukraine policies or, or some of the things they've done in the past with reference to the former Vice President Biden. And this article comes out and says that one of the things that Ukraine really needs is not necessarily money, but it needs uh, to be freed from its dependence on Russian LNG. So 37% of its uh, energy is uh, being supplied by Russia. and. For those of you who don't know, there's a, a tension between Russia and Ukraine and, and some of the issues there. So the article is going in and saying what uh, what Ukraine really needs is for the U.S. to begin exporting LNG there. And the reason I think that's important is, is that's, I think, one of the big markets that's going to be coming online soon is going to be these international LNG agreements made with the U.S. to these other countries. The, the article goes on to say that Europe is already being targeted by the U.S. Um, for Trump's uh, global or national energy dominance for the United States. Uh, but they're being targeted, uh, entire, the entirety of Europe. Uh, but Ukraine is kind of being left out of that. So we're not targeting them with this LNG. Yeah, this is an interesting point of discussion because talk about free trade and you know how you feel about that and then you look at this and this is more of a national security type debate which resonates with a lot of people so i'm kind of torn when you when you read this it's like um it's a very sticky web that you get into here and i'm not sure the right way to think about it because i understand i'm sympathetic to the argument of um yeah you strike a deal with ukraine they're not dependent on russia so i'm very sympathetic to that argument i'm also theoretically worried that if Ukraine is dependent on us, then we could put them in precarious spots where that would be good for the Ukrainian people as well. So it's it's a very it's very it's kind of a, a a tough way to 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 figure out where you go on this because you you don't want them dependent on Russian natural gas or LNG, um, but you also you know if we're going to give it to them, we'd have to give it to them at a discount theoretically because Russia should be able to get to it for cheaper. Um, so how do you work that with the U.S. companies? There's and then, and then, are you putting pressure on their government to buy from you? So it's a very, yeah, it's a very interesting thought process. I do understand, though, the the argument from a national security standpoint that you do strike these deals so that your enemies aren't selling energy to your allies. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's often overlooked is the energy aspect of the geopolitical um, situation that we find ourselves in. That. Uh, oil and gas being such a major supplier of energy uh, internationally 
that it really dominates a lot of the political landscapes of China, Japan, Iraq, Iran. Um, a lot of people assume that some of these wars that are going on are about one thing, where I think the, the truth really goes back to energy and ability to control that energy and how it's transported is usually what's going on. Well, the article points out something interesting, um, that they're getting almost $3 billion a year in transit fees. So people are shipping, uh, Russia shipping, you know, gas from Russia across the way. And so to wherever they're, they're at in you know, Europe. And so they're getting almost $3 billion, I think it's $2.8 uh, yeah, yeah, billion in transit fees. So, you know, how, how do you, so you, you say, well, you want to sell the natural gas for a cheap price. Okay, well, that's, that's fine. They're, they're, you can make that argument. Well, then you say, well, what about this $2.8 billion you're making? I don't know what the, what the, um, you know, the, the, the annual Ukrainian government budget is, you know, how much they're bringing in. But I'm guessing $2.8 billion is a pretty good chunk for them. 3%, I think. Yeah, 3%. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, there it is, 3% of his GDP. Sorry. Um, so that's a pretty good chunk. So mm-hmm. are we, is, is the U.S. taxpayers supposed to subsidize that as well? So you, you get in, and that's, that's why I'm saying it's, it's I'm, I'm sympathetic to the national security argument. But I also think it's something you have to watch out for. Um, next thing you know, you're subsidizing. Well, Russia was doing this, and you're you're doing that, and Russia was doing that, and you're subsidizing that. And so, um, in a perfect world, yes, I think it's what we should be trying to do, which is sell our product um, to anyone who wants to buy it. But it's also th- these these aren't just clear cut deals like we like to talk about um, from a pure business standpoint. There's a lot more going on here. Well, we had an article that came out from RigZone. Oil and gas is here to stay. And what is referenced here is uh, OPEC's research shows that oil and gas in this industry as a whole is here to stay. There is a Secretary General Mohammed uh, Barkindo revealed in a speech at the at a particular conference on <laughs> September 26th. <laughs> oh, the Kaz Energy Eurasian Forum, I think is what that is. Kaz Energy. Oh, Kaz that's energy. easy. Well, uh, so this guy, this uh, inspector general, uh, secretary, was given a speech, and he was referencing some of the expectations of OPEC. And what they see is that a robust demand growth is going to cause the energy industry as a whole to continue to grow and expand until 2040. So uh, from the OPEC um, perspective, the oil and gas situation is overly or, or generally optimistic until about 2040. So um, everyone has their different perspectives. This is a guy from OPEC, and and so they're they're giving you their perspective. And um, overall, I think it's pretty interesting to see kind of where they're pulling their numbers and things. So this, I'm not big on long-term project, per, uh, projections because usually they omit this one factor, and he. Now, I don't know. I haven't looked at the technical side of the report here, but he emphasizes it. He says most of this, talking about demand growth, most of this will come from developing countries with high population growth rates, expanding middle classes, and strong economic growth. That is exactly right. When you look at these reports that say oil and gas will be peak demand by 2035, oil and gas will peak demand by 2030, um, no, unless you believe the world is going to be poor really poor and not not just first world all these developing emerging markets are going to be poor forever i don't believe that i believe that they are going to be up and to the right obviously you have setbacks here and there but i don't i don't think that so the demand for oil and, for oil and gas is up and to the right and is probably on pace 
at a, at a pace it could be on a pace that you can't even fathom at this point um, now i don't want to be like hey um you know get crazy on my speculation here but but there are legitimate reasons to believe that the long-term health especially in our lifetime for gas and oil is going to be up to the right and until these nations because think about this josh if you're in um we'll pick a random african nation that's not very developed just insert one here their need for oil and gas right now is very minimal but as they become richer, what happens? They need more roads, they need more cars, they need more houses. When you get a house, what do you need in a house? You need all this stuff that goes in a house. These plastics go in a house. You know, you need more people to move stuff around. You need more builders. All of a sudden, as you, the richer you get, the more oil and gas that you need. And so it's hard to imagine that over the course of the next 30 years that all these nations are going to stay poor. Um, it's a very pessimistic outlook that I don't carry. Uh, and so, yeah, I think he's actually hitting on things here now. You know, long-term predictions are very hard to make and all that stuff. But I think that this key sentence, most of these, most of these, most of this will come from developing countries with high population growth rates, expanding middle classes, and strong economic growth. I think that's the thing you're watching for as an oil and gas industry person. What's not not, not what's happening in the U.S. economy? Um, that's short-term thinking, and that's important for our jobs. Long-term. Will the industry be viable? Is what's going to happen in you know Angola or um, India? In, yeah, well, India, well, India and China, those are huge. That are I mean, they're emerging, but I'm talking like not more the, first world. more I mean, more even really on the third world. Yeah, third world that are going to develop into you know emerging. Those those have to hit, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on. You know, we don't sit up every day and read about you know what's going on in these developing markets around the world. So it's hard for us to kind of fathom that. Um, the more technology expands, the better resources are. You think about it now, like, like this now, if you're in Africa and you can speak English, and I only say this because English because I know about English stuff, I don't know about other, other languages, but if you're around the world right now and you can speak English, you can learn reading, writing, math, history hmm. for free. Khanacademy.com, iTunes, whatever. You can learn all kinds of stuff. So the ability for developing nations to educate the population if they get access to the Internet is not like it was in 1927. Now they can log on. They can go to khanacademy.com or .org or whatever it is, and they can learn. I don't, I don't even know. I have to pull it up here. But they have courses for, like, everything, I think. And so the impact of that, the ability to educate people, is fundamentally different. And you can't minimize that when you talk about how will that impact the growth. So you don't have to have a, a robust, trained society of teachers in developing nations like you did in the United States to get us to where we were. They're here. They're on the Internet, and they're free. And if they're not free, the World Bank will probably subsidize it to make it free for your country. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic, and I think there's a lot of reasons to be. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things that I think is often overlooked with oil and gas. Um, I hate to always go back to, um, to climate stuff, Ryan, but there was a, a deal that came out, I think, was it last week, where the girl was giving the speech. It was all over Twitter where oh, yeah, she was yeah. talking about we were ruining her dreams. And, yeah, how um, dare we? Yes, I how and there was a guy that came out. The guy was a um, he was talking about the African children mm-hmm. that are that are they're dying in, in huge numbers. Uh, environments just brutal over there. And the guy was saying that we should be thinking about how we could utilize the energy of the oil and gas industry to save millions and millions of people. Um, and, and that what this girl was, was wanting was basically to stop the progress we can make for them. She, she was right, just to be clear. How dare they lie to her like they have and manipulated her to where she, some young kid, believed all these lies. Because yeah, one of the things she said was the science is clear for 30 years. 
Well, I don't know who told you that, but it's not clear, and it hadn't been clear ever, and it probably won't ever be clear, and we can get another day. But that, I mean, I heard some of the statements. She goes, the science has been clear for 30 years. If we don't do something in this amount of time, it's like, that's what they've been saying for 30 years. And I'm not, I don't pick on a little girl. I'm mad at people who have told her that. Mm. And so I, I have the same amount of outrage that she has towards the same people, but for a fundamentally different reason. And I think that's kind of what's lost in this debate. We should always piss off them dudes because they're a bunch of liars, you know. Uh, real quick, let's go back to Khan Academy just for a second, Josh. I pulled it up. So if you can access Khan Academy, KhanAcademy.org, early math, arithmetic, pre-algebra, algebra 1, geometry, algebra 2, trig, pre-calc, statistics, AP calc, AB, AP calc, BC, AP statistics. Uh, they got some more. They've got math by grade. They've got science and engineering. That's that's physics, AP physics, astronomy, chemistry, biology. They've got history, which is mainly U.S. history, but that's world history as well. They have civics. They have economics. They have computer programming, computer science, test prep. How can you measure the impact of having this free resource globally? Mm. And so if you can speak English, and again, this, there's not to say this in other languages. I don't know. I just know it's in English because I speak English. How can you measure how this will impact developing nations? And this, this is just one resource. We've, me and you, I know, have gotten on uh, podcasts or iTunes and gotten courses. So when these people are pessimistic, it's like, well, the ability to educate the masses now is not like it was, you know, when our parents were growing up, our grandparents were growing up. So why do we think that developing nations, as they get access to the Internet, cheap phones, cheap laptops, will not tap into this? And then the little entrepreneurs that are be growing up right now will get in here and figure out how to do trigonometry or figure out how to learn math or, you know, basic finance and, and open their own shop. So why, why do we presume that about people? I don't I, that's my that's my that's my struggle. I mean, think about this. If you're if you're wanting to get out of poverty, here's the resources ba- from a basic educational standpoint that you need. Yeah, and I, I expect that more and more people are going to be utilizing that in, in these countries. And so. Uh, I'm very optimistic at the overall demand growth you know, with plastics and oil and energy and infrastructure and all of that. It, it's going to, I believe, like you said, up and to the right for, for many years because there are so many nations that are still in, in that developing phase you know, that they don't have near the infrastructure. And so there's a spike of demand coming with these nations as they develop that um, it kind of goes back to the distribution of labor these certain developed countries are going to have excesses of energy that they want to sell in order to make profit and 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 we're still finding oil around the world natural gas around the world south africa has large natural gas deposits they're not even exploring those so you you know it's so it's not we're saying that industries can be viable how the price will react we don't know because we don't have the full earth mapped on all the oil reserves and how we can maximize those so it's hard to factor all those things out but to assume to presume that oil and gas will go away there's no logical reason unless you want to say unicorns will come and invent unicorn energy and then all of a sudden unicorn energy will be the thing. Unless you believe in that, there's no reason to think that this won't be the case. So it's, it's very frustrating. Um, it's good to see the OPEC, at least on this issue, is, is right. All right, Ryan. Well, we got our Texas Roundup we want to get to before our, uh, our friend Reed comes on. Uh, so every week I... As soon as uh, Sergio's Drilling Down article comes up, he's got a couple of good insights. Um, you know, drilling permits that are that are released. Uh, BHP is is moving um, pretty aggressively right now compared to what they have been in, in the last decade. Um, ConocoPhillips completes a 2.7 billion dollar sale of the United Kingdom EMP subsidiaries. 
Um, so they are they're selling off many of their assets, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see you know what they're planning to do with that um, with that income. Obviously, trying to increase cash flow, but also probably have some uh, some further investments. Josh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, Sergio finally did put the Barnett shell back on the map. And you would think the Barnett shell having a well, even though it's a storage well, even though it's for Atmos, who doesn't do a lot of the stuff, you would think that would make news for Sergio because he was happy, happy to throw us under the bus a few weeks ago when we didn't have any. But guess where he puts it at? At the very bottom. The yeah. very bottom. Not that the, bar- not that the Barnett's making a resurgence. Not that the Barnett's up from the grave. None of that. Just flippantly throws out that we've got one little storage well. How dare you, sir? Like we, how, What else do we have to do to get the, the favor of Sergio? I don't know. I don't know. I, you should have had that up at the top. That's big I news. Mean, That's big news. What, <laughs> I mean, what else do we have to ask for? We finally, you, you mock us for not drilling a well. We go out and drill one. Again, it's a storage well. It's 2,933 feet. It's not sexy. I get it. But, you know, at some point, Sergio, you got to help us out. They're like the next Cabot. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting the cabinet treatment. The poor Barnett is. So uh, Fluor is selling $1 billion worth of his assets uh, to refocus on energy projects. So um, for a little background, Fluor actually helped design and build several refineries, including one for Dow, Marathon, Total. Um, so they, they've been active in the energy industry but they also have some other um, government services and construction equipment rental divisions that they that they've had and they're selling those they want to they want to focus more on the energy industry uh, mining chemical plants and things of that nature yeah so i was curious about this and when sergio comes back on i know he listens so we're getting to break this down i'm curious because they are selling a bunch of their stuff and they're going to focus on it but like one of the things they're selling off is their equipment rental and so um and some of the some of the things they mentioned seem that they would be not only for other sectors but also for energy so i'm curious if it's if it is just kind of a blanket we're cutting out this this division or if it's only those divisions as they pertain to non-energy type stuff so when sergio comes on maybe help help us clarify that because i wasn't um i wasn't exactly clear on how it's not the it's not a Sergio. Everyone I've seen reported it has reported it kind of this way. So I don't know if floor is not very clear or I, it could be that I'm not smart enough to read. Josh, that's we've we've seen that on the show before. Okay. Well, so there there is a little section here where it says the decision comes following two quarters in a row of losses that put the company more than 613 million in the red. So it would seem to me that they're probably looking at the specific divisions where their margins are bad. And uh, I would I would think that based on the title of the article that the energy aspects of their divisions but, were actually profiting. Right, but so like but the construction equipment rental division, are you not going to rent equipment for anyone, or just for energy? Just, or, or are you going to focus on your energy? So that's, that's what I'm saying. Like yeah, that that would yeah. seem to be something that could could expand to non-energy stuff and mm-hmm. energy stuff. So sure. and there was someone else who mentioned uh, I don't remember who it was. I saw a headline the other day talking about some of the things. So that, that's all my, that's all I'm curious is that. Are those divisions completely gone, or are they gone when they don't pertain to energy-related stuff? And last but not least, this is one that I wanted to mention at the end run. Um, Qatar Petroleum eyes new long-term LNG deals as expansion progresses. Um, At the YP event, the LNG came up, and we've talked a little bit about it. Exxon, some some of the majors. 
uh, the super majors, they are uh, investing in LNG pretty heavily on an international stage. And what some of these guys said, uh, along with you know, other major companies, is that LNG is going to be one of the main drivers of growing demand in the next you know, 15, 20 years. So oil seems to be pretty stable right now. And they're saying, you know, even though gas prices are down, LNG is a, is a huge opportunity for these companies, and they're investing in it now because of the opportunities that will be coming up. And so Qatar, they're eyeing a new long-term LNG deal, which just kind of fits in that narrative of uh, these major companies looking for these LNG opportunities. Okay, we have uh, a recurring guest, uh, Reed Goodman, Permian Sales Manager, Extract Gas Lift Systems, coming on the show today. Reed, great to have you on the show, man. Hey, good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Well, Reed, it's good to have you on the show. We've been talking about getting you on for a couple weeks now. Um, longtime listener of the show, you have to resolve this before we go any further. Who is your favorite host? Is it Josh or myself? And good Lord, if you say Nate, I'm hanging up on you right now. <laughs> Ryan, I'm going to go with Josh. Amen. Wow. Ooh. Wow. Wow. That, that hurts deep. That hurts deep, Reed. That hurts deep. Like, how, like, hey, who was working the floor of that shrimp boil, Ryan? <laughs> Josh. His political leanings don't, uh, don't really get me uh, fired up as much, and it, it helps me focus throughout my day. Well, you had something to talk about to the guests. I'm sure it was important. Reed, why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? <laughs> wow, man, that's that's that that's a tough pill to swallow, there, Reed. I don't know if we can be friends anymore. Um, Reed, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, though, uh, and what you do in the industry, um, and uh, and we'll get into kind of the, the topics for the day. Yeah, Ryan, I'm uh, I'm based in Midland, Texas. Um, we have a company called Extract, and what it is is a, a production company uh, specifically. Um, we do H pumps, uh, horizontal pumps. We do uh, ESPs, electronic submersible pumps, and uh, we do gas lift as well. And I'm in charge of the gas lift uh, section out in West Texas. Um, so, um, and of course, uh, the submersible pumps and the gas lift are, are a form of artificial lift. So, um, yeah. So, real quick, break, yeah. yeah. Yeah, break that down for our, our maybe our midstream or upstream uh, or uh, downstream listeners, rather. Kind of what is artificial lift, and where do you guys kind of come into the, the oil and gas world? Yeah, so um, to to start, I guess from the beginning, right? So we we drill a well, um, come in and, and do the hydraulic fracturing in most of these shell plays. Um, at some point, there's some natural pressure in the reservoir that will just push the oil and the gas out of the well on its own. Um, at some point in the production life of that well, that pressure is not great enough to overcome the vertical lift needed to come out of the well. And that's the point at which we step in. So we have to add energy to the system. Uh, and there's several ways of doing that. Most people are familiar with the pump jacks. Um, and that's kind of the oldest form of artificial lift uh, and one of the most reliable uh, with a, like a low bottom hole pressure or something like that. So. Traditionally, a lot of people assumed every well would eventually go to having a pump jack on it. Um, but there's a couple other forms of artificial lift we can do. So one of them is the electronic submersible pump, uh, which is basically like a water well pump, right? Uh, that's just overgrown uh, and a thousand times deeper uh, than your water well. Um, so that uses electricity to spin the pump and, and push the water uh, and the oil out of the ground. 
And then the one that I specialize in is called gas lift. And uh, what we do is we take high pressure gas uh, that's been compressed on surface and inject it into the well. And what it does is it lightens the density of the fluid column and basically bubbles everything to the surface, right? So uh, some of the old school guys call it a bubble pump. Um, but, but what we're doing is we're injecting that gas and helping the well flow almost in a natural state uh, through, in, through that injection. So one of the things we talked about on the show before, and I'm curious your thoughts on, it is, you know, the parent-child stuff, decline rates. There's a lot of talk about that in the, from the kind of the analyst standpoint. From, from the boots on the ground, what are you guys seeing um, with decline curves on these wells? And, you know, the, the, as a, is the parent-child stuff something that y'all are concerned about? Does it play much in, in the artificial lift business? Um, let's kind of, you know, kind of tie those things together for the audience. Yeah, so when you get into the production side of it, um, there's a lot of uh, stacked plays out here in Midland in particular, right? And so we may have five or six formations right on top of each other. And when they drill these pads with multiple wells on them, they will go into multiple formations, right? Um, and so on the artificial lift side, we need to look at which formation you are in and how many wells are around it and what's been done uh, uh, close and what may be done in the future very close, right? And so we'll see that... Um, that should you be in, in like say a lower, lower spray barrier, we're gonna get a lot of water. And if somebody around you fracks, um, we're gonna have that well flooded out with water uh, and we're gonna need a design for that. Um, what we see as far as, as decline goes, um, the decline curves are getting steeper uh, as time goes on. So we're not producing as much uh, fluid per barrel of wellbore, I mean per foot of wellbore. Um, and so with those with those larger decline curves, people are wanting to draw down their well as fast as possible in the beginning and get as much money back as fast as possible uh, because they believe the value of a dollar today is worth more than the value of that dollar tomorrow, right? Um, and so just mentality-wise, traditionally we wanted a well to produce a little bit of oil for a long time and just always have that paycheck uh, in the bank. Um, and now people are kind of shifting and we get a lot of uh, requests for, for creating a higher IT. So we want as much oil out of the ground as fast as possible for the majority of companies out here in the Permian, right? Um, but then that differs by company. So um, you can kind of see where some companies take a longer approach, uh, especially the larger companies uh, that have uh, huge acreage holes out here. Um, and they have deeper pockets. Um, they want to produce that well for a long time. And they found that um, if you don't draw that well down as hard in the beginning, at the end of say two years, you'll produce 15% more oil at the end of two years. Um, but with some of these smaller companies, they need the cash now, right? Um, and so we get into these guys wanting to draw them down as fast as possible, put that money in the bank and go on and drill the next one. So why do you think the uh, the decline curves are increased from a kind of a, a larger perspective? Um, you know, we've had folks that are kind of old veterans say that, hey, the tier one acreage is almost gone. We're drilling the tier two stuff now. It's not going to be as productive. We have some people who have other theories. Do you guys have any theory of why we're seeing these decline rates um, today go down uh, like you're saying the steep increase is it formational is it is it just strictly like you're saying a business decision that we're seeing um any other thoughts on on the tier one tier two kind of expanded the permian outside the core assets 
Yeah, I think we see a lot of experiment with uh, spacing, right? So we're trying to figure out uh, how tight is too tight. Um, then, of course, people are trying to, you know, some companies have the, the idea that they want to pull it down as fast as possible and they're not really uh, concerned with the degradation of the formation. And then just in general, as so many wells have been drilled, uh, most of these formations out here are what you would consider overpressured, especially in the Delaware. So when you drill them, they have a ton of pressure to start with. Um, and as we we fractured and, and these fractures go so far out and they communicate between all these wells, we're kind of drawing the pressure down across all of the formation. Um, right. I say that tongue in cheek. Right. Well, one of the things that you mentioned a minute ago was um, companies are looking to drill because they're trying to get their money out of the play pretty quickly. As we know, we've got the profit doom speaker who emails in from time to time his thoughts on it. Um, what are your? What is the sense out there? Is it that hey, that yeah, someone like Speakner's kind of right, and the majors are going to come in and pick up the pennies on the dollar from all these bankruptcies? Is it a little bit more slow where you'll see you know, more M and A activity, or do you have more of a robust outlook for these these small companies that they will be able to survive the storm and then ultimately come out profitable on the other side? Yeah, Ryan, um, I don't know. That's a hard one. Uh, so I see with companies like XTO, right, they have a large acreage hold um, and they drill these wells with a mindset that they want to produce them for a long time. And they do a lot of things differently than the small mom and pops do um, because they have the pocketbook to stay in it, right? And so they're not, they don't need to get their cash out today. And so like when I, when I mentioned that, that they produce these wells really hard, if you put a large ESP uh, in a small well bore, say a five and a half inch well bore, and you put a four, six uh, ESP in there, a 4,500 series, um, what happens is you create erosional velocity around the ESP when you're producing because you're producing so much fluid in such a tight space. And we know for a fact that that's cutting out casing walls. And so when we're trying to get this oil out so fast, um, we're not looking at, hey, what is this wellbore going to look like in 10 years or in 15 years? They might have to plug an economic wellbore because of the environmental hazard or because of some kind of casing collapse, right? And so right. when these guys aren't looking so far ahead, uh, we create more problems by trying to get this money today. And so I do think that Speakner might be right in a lot of this, that the guys with the bigger pockets are taking a much more steadied approach uh, to kind of having a lasting presence. So one of the things that um, David Blackman theorized a few weeks ago when he was on is that, that you know, if you look at horizontal fracking versus conventional wells, that that it's, it's, it's a lot harder, and so the companies that are thriving are the ones that have the, the expertise, the skill set, the, um, you know, they have a competitive advantage because of just the, the, the brain trust, if you will. Um, I, I'm curious your thoughts. Is that an oversimplification of things, or do you think that there is a lot of truth into, you know, the companies that do have, um, that, that unlike conventional, it does on some level boil down to the, 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 uh, the talent. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for word here, but uh, the expertise of the management team. Yeah, I think, I think he's absolutely right. So we're, uh, in a sense, a company that's doing very well over here is only pennies ahead of a company that's doing very poorly, right, for every barrel. Um, and so what we see is that you need to recreate greatness in every single well bore. Whereas traditionally, uh, you would drill a well and you would get a six or seven or eight to one return on your money. 
And in some of these wells, you might only get a two and a half or three to one on your money. And so what you have to do is you have to be able to replicate it time and time again. You can't hit one big one and bank your retirement on it, right? So uh, being that this this play is uh, is so intensive in that way, uh, yeah, it, I think that expertise uh, comes in very heavily. So you loosely threw this out there, environmental issues. As you know, on the show, we've you know, we've kind of been proponents of, you know, if the industry is doing something environmentally dangerous, we want to make sure that we're aware of it. We're trying to, as the industry, lead the preventive, you know, we don't want to be regulated because we could have stopped something. Um, circle back around to that. You said there's some environmental concerns there. What are those concerns? What are maybe some solutions that we can look at to prevent those or to mitigate the risk on those? Um, because we want to make sure that the industry is educated and we are, you know, leading Leading the charge to protect the environment, not not being regulated into it. Right. So, um, like I mentioned with the ESPs earlier, um, that's a portion that's all the way down in the producing zone. So, what happens there is it's it's not necessarily uh, an environmental issue um, like you would see come up on the news or Greenpeace or anything like that, but it's a uh, like a casing failure issue where we're going to have to go back in and rework that well, right? Um, And it's going to cost us a lot of money down the the road to keep this online and to keep producing. Otherwise, we're just going to have to shut it in uh, and drill new wells. Um, And so I I don't think we've necessarily seen anything uh, to to be uh, alerted uh, or have any red flags on anything. yeah, I think that's kind of just where I was going with that okay. that direction. Okay. That uh, just to be clear is in the formation. Okay, I got I got you. I, I was making sure that we. I wanted to circle back around that, so I didn't leave it out there on the table. Um, yeah, and if we start seeing these companies have to shut in their wells sooner than they anticipated. Um, and they're publicly traded, that would be a pretty, I don't want to say a scandal, that's not the right term, but that would be pretty pretty devastating for a CEO to come on and say, you know, hey, we had to shut in these wells, and I had to go out and re, re, uh, re-drill them. Um, so that that's, if you're, I guess, PE money, you, you can kind of keep it under ramps, but if publicly traded companies had to come out and start admitting this, that would be devastating for their stock prices, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and I was uh, I was at Deer Camp this past weekend with uh, a production engineer and a drilling supervisor, and uh, we got to have some good conversation uh, around the campfire about the differences uh, between what the drilling supervisor is asked to do and what the production engineer is asked to do uh, inside the same company, right? Um, and so going into it from the beginning, looking at the long term, when we drill record speed wells like we do today, um, there's a lot of people that get bonuses on how fast you can drill that well. But then when you get to the production engineer and he tries to produce that well, you can't get wire line down. You can't ever run rods for a rod pump uh, uh, to run a pump jack to pump it that direction. So you're kind of left only with gas lift in some of these wells. And so uh, the communication from one end to the other uh, can get very uh, muddy. And yeah. and if a Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think you're onto something there, and just I want to get your opinion on this because one of the things I've learned since doing this podcast is um, I saw it on the service side of things with our company, but I've seen it more talking to listeners and, and hearing from folks. The feedback is, is that the messaging in the oil and gas industry is, you know, we've kind of talked on the show some. It's very universal, but the reality is, is that the news that Reed's concerned about and, and the way it needs to be presented for him to execute in his business, the news for Ryan is different. And these oil and gas companies, they have. 
they don't they don't seem to have realized that that the way the news or the sales pitches or the production or whatever it is they're doing, they kind of have a universal message. And then the departments will almost have goals that are counterintuitive to each other and makes them work against each other. And it makes it very hard for um, service companies, consultants, industry experts to go in because you might pitch to person A and that's what person A needs. But person B, that's not the message that they want to hear. And you can't connect with them because you're not exactly sure what the message is because you don't get to them. So I, th- I think you're on to something there because um, we have seen it where companies will have directly, I'm talking direct motive, uh, uh, incentives that will work uh, directly opposite of one, one another. And it's, it's very frustrating depending on which side you are because one part of your business is going out doing something and it's actually hurting and raising the cost for the other part of the business. Absolutely. We see it all the time and specifically with Gaslift because – in gas lift, we have no moving parts uh, to lift the fluid, right? And so we get a lot of wells that are drilled, and the, pro- the, the best application may be for this well to go to rod pump, but they have no choice but to run gas lift because of the way it was drilled, right? And so it hamstrings the rest of the company down the line. Now, I'm not saying that's bad for our business. Right, but right. Uh, just looking at it as, at an overall, you would hope that that every company is going to do their best to produce the best, um, and and that's just good for the industry all around. Exactly. So the message is: make sure that your de- your department heads are talking to each other. The CEO is taking the, un- that under advisement, and the message is universal. How does this impact one department to the next? Um, because there's probably a lot of fat on the bone that's being left there because we're not we're not looking at this right way. Okay, Reed, let me ask you this. We'll let you go here after this question. Um, six months from now, if we have you back on the podcast, so early for end of the first quarter, 2020. What do you think the message is in? Do you think some of these problems have been exacerbated? Do you think that we've turned the corner? Um, I, and we're not going to hold you to this, obviously. It's just kind of a, a fun prediction. But just something for the listeners to kind of look forward to as we round out 2019 and we go into the first quarter of 2020. Yeah, I think, Ryan, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the Permian. Uh, where I live, south of town, south of Midland here, uh, there is a, a – frack job within two miles every direction of my house uh and so you know there may have been a little bit of slowing down but for the most part there's a lot of acreage to be drilled there's a lot of work in the permian still specifically uh and and i don't think it's going to dry up or quit anytime soon especially with the economics out here and so uh, i think it's still just a really good positive outlook um i don't see anything going to you know going to uh trying to think of a euphemism that's not uh, not poor for the radio. <laughs> going to pot, as we used to say. Um, okay, why don't you go ahead why don't you go ahead and tell people again who you work for, what you guys do, obviously we are official lift, but kind of summarize that again. Website, social media, once you plug, promote, all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Reed Goodman, uh, and that's spelled R E E D like deer backwards. Um, the company is Extract Production, uh, and specifically I'm with Extract Gasless Systems. Um, you can find either of those two on LinkedIn, uh, and we have a website that's just extractproduction.com. Uh, so any of those ways will get in touch with us. Yeah, and we'll make sure we link to all of that in the show notes. Reed, thank you for coming on. Thank you for helping me with the Bush China stuff. And I'm sorry my politics gives you heartburn. Uh, maybe I had to get Josh to express more of his communist leanings more, uh, more, more often so he can give you some heartburn as well. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys.
All right. Thanks again to Reed Goodman, Permian Sales Manager. I'm not thinking him for nothing. I'm not thinking him <laughs> for nothing. Not a single thing. Come on. I mean. Well, Ryan, what I'm finding as I meet more of these listeners is they share the same sentiment as uh, as Mr. Reed does. So. I thought uh, our listeners were smarter than that. I really <laughs> did. I thought we had some of the most educated, passionate listeners in the world. And well, I once met a guy whose favorite host wasn't Josh. He just loved Landon. Oh, <laughs> that was Reed. <laughs> I think, I think that was Reed. Reed was involved in all that. So, you know, it is, it's just, uh, it's just depressing. It's like you know, you come out here, you man of the people, not like Sergio Chapa hanging out with the elite, and it's just uh, Josh gets all the glory. I guess it's lonely at the top. Yeah, I kind of like the NBA people. People work just as hard. Just not everybody can be, you know, LeBron James. <laughs> you are the LeBron James. Let's just get that out there right now. If you want to take the LeBron James moniker, the whiny, self-absorbed, not very educated man, then I will give you that. Now, you're talented, so we can't we can't despite that. But if you want to be LeBron, you can have LeBron. I'll I'll give you LeBron. Um, but look, I'm not Dwight Howard. That's all I'm saying. Okay, <laughs> I'm not Dwight Howard. That's just all I'm saying. You know. <laughs> I know where you're going with that. <laughs> all right, let's wrap it up. All right. So thanks again, Reed. Uh, really enjoyed having you come on the show today. Very informative. So uh, big shout out. Uh, he's Permian Sales Manager with Extract Gas Lift Systems. With that, Ryan, I think that yeah, uh, wraps us up. I think that's it. Uh, thanks for the listeners. Please leave us a rating and review. And for the Michael Jordan of this podcast, I will say on behalf of LeBron James, the, the lesser of the two. Nate? Nate, Nate. Yeah, so hold on. I'll, I'll take Jordan. You can have LeBron. Nate, we got we got we to give Nate a time. Let's see here. Is he like uh, – oh, gosh. He's like – He's like Robert Ory, okay? <laughs> you don't really want him on your team, but occasionally he comes up big. Occasionally. And so we'll give Nate Robert Ory stat. I think that's that's probably a little that's probably being generous, yeah. if I'm being fair. Jeremy Lynn. Jeremy Lynn. <laughs> he's yeah, he's a Jeremy Lynn. Um let's see here. Yeah, I think that's Dennis Rodman, maybe. Yeah, Jeremy Lynn won a championship. Keep in mind, gentlemen, that my hand is on the record button. That here. is true. That is true. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So he's like he's like a, he's the guy who comes in. He gets 10, 15 rebounds. Doesn't score a lot of points. You know, but you got to have those rebounds. And like Draymond Green hits an occasional shot. So, uh, uh, so that's fine. I'll be Jordan. I'll take goat status. You know, I'm not going to argue with you guys over that. Um, We'll give uh we'll, we'll call Nate Draymond and Josh is somehow LeBron. I don't even know how that's happening. That's that's depressing. It's depressing on many levels. Reed, you've ruined my day. To the listeners, until next time, keep climbing. <laughs>